Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa, and welcome to episode 83 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. Good morning, Melissa. It's good to talk with you. So we are coming up on Mother's Day. And I'm curious what your family does to, do they celebrate Mother's Day? Do they celebrate you? Do they, is the focus more on celebrating your mom? How does it work? Well, and you have a daughter who's a mother too. You have three generations of mothers at your house. There's a lot of mothers going on. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, As all good celebrations in our family include, it's really about the food. It's really just another excuse to do food. And so for my mom and me, we love an excuse to do Korean. So for the past, I don't know, maybe five or six years, we've gone down into the city and gotten Korean carryout. Last year, we added to that Ethiopian carryout for Kayla. Funnily enough, that's not, I don't even know if that's a word, but the boys don't really like any of the food that the moms want. So then we also have to get something else for them. So I don't know what that will look like under quarantine this year. I mean, restaurants are open for carryout. So maybe we'll just continue as we always have. Well, at our house, it's not so much about the particulars of what we have. The main thing is that I do not want to cook it or plan it or clean it up. So fortunately, I have a lot of big kids now and, uh, my daughter Anna Rose is home during quarantine and Claire's been doing a lot of cooking. So they will cook for us, which will be really, really nice. And we have not a strong tradition, but somewhat of a tradition of doing some planting flowers and things on Mother's Day, if we're pretty confident that frost is going to be gone. So I have a feeling more than anything, we will probably be outdoors. We built a new patio last summer. And so I think we'll be spending some time out there and that will be really, really nice. Yeah, it's been really rainy. It's been a cool April here in the Mid-Atlantic. So I am excited about warm weather and getting outside more. So hopefully, since we're ushering in May this week, we'll start to head more towards spring and warmer things. Yes. Well, today we have an interview that's a little bit different from what we've done before. Um, You interviewed your friend, Erin, about infertility and infant loss. And while neither of us have walked through infertility, we know that that's a big part of many of our listeners, many of your stories, and we want to learn and we want to be aware and be able to help and support you in the best ways we can. And so, um, Melissa, you invited Erin to be on the podcast. Yeah, so this is actually an interview I did while I still had my solo podcast, and Erin has been kind enough to let us reshare it. But we are friends in real life, and I had the privilege of walking with her through just a really tough season. She has two kids, one by birth and one through adoption. And she just shares really candidly about their journey through infertility and with infant loss but it's still full of hope and joy and faith. And I think you're really going to fall in love with her. So here's my conversation with Erin. I'm really glad that you're here and willing to kind of share a little bit of your heart with us. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. So tell us a little bit about just who makes up your world, who makes up, who are you? Like, what are, who are your people? What do you do with your days? All those things. (laughs) 
Okay, well, I am a wife and a mother of two children on earth and a lover of Jesus. I'm a homeschooler, um, stay-at-home mom. I have, my son is nine and my daughter is almost five. She'll be five at the end of December. And we have a dog. <laughs> it's also part so of our fun. family. Yeah, our days are, are made up of, of schooling and a lot of activities. Uh, right now, my son is in a hip-hop dance class that I'm waiting on him to get out of. Yeah, we're kind of just running around and doing a lot of things this school year that we haven't done in the past, and it's actually been a lot of fun. So I want to go back to when you were introducing your family, and you mentioned that you have two children here on Earth, and so I know that that means that you have some other children in your heart, and so tell us a little bit more about that experience and how many other children you count in your family. Sure. When I was in high school, I actually got diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and so I knew, even though I was a child, that eventually it wasn't going to be cut and dry for me to have children. And so after Timmy and I got married, you know, we decided we wanted to start a family, and it wasn't happening, but we weren't surprised. It just ended up being a much uh, harder, longer journey than I had ever thought that it would be. We did the very basic thing that any doctor will do with a woman who's having difficulty after some testing, and they just gave me a pill called Clomid, hoping that I would then ovulate and make a baby with my husband at home, but that never happened. And so we decided to jump right to IVF, in vitro fertilization, which is the most invasive um, infertility treatment you can have. And our first try worked, and we had Jamie. And we were thrilled, and we thought to ourselves, well, gosh, that wasn't really that hard. This is just the way we'll have kids, no big deal. And we had discussed that we wanted a larger family, four to six children. We wanted the noise and the the slamming of doors and the laughter and the chaos and all of that joy that a larger family can bring. And so when Jamie was created, there were 10 other embryos or their babies that were created as well. And so after Jamie was a year and a half, I think, we went back and started trying again. And every single cycle that we did failed. So I didn't become pregnant again in that cycle of embryos that were made when Jamie was made. At that point is when we started discussing adoption and what that would look like for our family because I am an only child, and I didn't ever want to have one child. Like I had said previously, we wanted a larger family to begin with, but being an only child myself, I was just not going to allow, if it was in my control, Jamie to be an only child. So at that point, I had stopped working 
after Jamie was born, and so we didn't have this amazing health insurance that had paid for all these extremely expensive treatments. And an emotional undertaking as well. So, like, what did that look like for you just in those cycles, and how long did you do that before you decided to start talking about adoption? We did, I always forget the exact number because, it was it was a traumatic part of my life, so the details and exact numbers and times of things become unclear to me, a bit, a bit cloudy. But I believe that with the 11 embryos, we had seven cycles. So I went in seven times to for transfers. I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. Emotionally, when I was doing it with Jamie... I would say that it was not very difficult because I didn't know what I was in for. I was only full of hope. I just thought, hey, it's going to work, and it did. Now, the subsequent cycles that we went in for and all of the negative results that we were getting, it started to take a toll Um, on me emotionally and a toll on Timmy for sure. Um, There are a lot of ugly issues that go along with infertility, like jealousy of other women, your friends who are getting pregnant. Of course, everybody's getting pregnant in their late 20s and early 30s. That's what everybody in the whole world is doing. And so there are baby showers and there are baptisms and there are first birthday parties that I had no interest in attending, and I gave myself permission just to not attend. And I think that there were people that were full of grace towards me in those situations, and I think there were people that didn't understand and looked at it as a very selfish move, but it was self-preservation time. I was grieving and mourning the loss of the family that Timmy and I dreamed of having. Yeah. So let me ask a question. As someone who has never been on the infertility emotional roller coaster, what is the most helpful thing when you're doing that and those birthday parties and baptisms as a, for your friends and as you being you, like, was it more helpful for your friends to invite you and leave the ball in your court or would you rather just not know? Always more helpful to be invited. And also when very much along those same lines, as my friends and family members were trying to have children and and being pregnant and making those announcements, it was always better for me to know that they were trying to get pregnant if they were willing to share that information. You know, some people are very open about that and some people aren't. And then when they get that positive result to tell me in private instead of me seeing it on Facebook. Instagram wasn't really a thing at that point. And I had a lot of people that were super kind to me in that way and would call me privately and let me know that they were pregnant or tell me that they were trying so that I didn't have to find out like in a group setting or in a on a social media setting because when I felt like I was kind of kept in the loop, even though it stings, I felt like I was part of it and that I wasn't trying to be 
um, kept away or they nobody was trying to hide from me. And that was better for my heart. Yeah, I love that. I love that in between of, I mean, you because you still want to be friends with people and you still want to love people, but that opportunity to really do it in a closer relationship, hear from your friends, even though they have news that is hard for you to digest, but for you to be able to digest, you know, have it more on your terms and be able to kind of grieve the paradigm of or that, not the paradigm, the paradox of that whole situation. Right. And kind of, yeah, just recognize your grief and recognize their joy kind of all in the same breath. So, yeah, all right, so, so go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, you know, to have full disclosure and be very honest, especially because I am 99.9% emotionally on the other side now. I don't know if that last tenth of a percent is ever going to go away. But it's not. I wasn't always happy for people. I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm happy for you. I'm just sad for me. Sometimes <laughs> I just wasn't happy. And I think that anybody listening to this that is suffering on this path, it's just good to know that it's an emotion that happens when you have infertility and you can't just lay with your husband the way God designed and have children and be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> you know, it's devastating. It's 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 devastating. And so I wasn't happy for people when they were pregnant and but sad for myself. I was just like, I can't I can't I can't deal. And as we moved forward in our journey and became comfortable and content I am in a much different place now where I'm happy to hold somebody's newborn or I'm excited for someone. And I, thankfully also, because I'm getting older and I'll be 40 next year, people, most people aren't having babies anymore. <laughs> so that in my life, you know, so that makes it easier a bit for, for us. And by us, I mean to me included in that. Yeah. Thanks for being so honest, because I think those are those emotions that no one talks about because they do feel ugly, and but they're so real and they're so human. And I think I would venture to guess that women walking through infertility have all been there. Our emotional journey through things is a journey also. And so I love that you can be there and know that you were there and know where God's brought you over the years. Um, and I think there's probably women out there that are listening to that and being like, thank you. Like, I'm not alone. You know, thanks for just putting that out there that that happened. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. And in that time of, of when we were trying and trying and trying and trying, it is when I felt closest to Jesus in that in that suffering. I never was mad at God, although that is a very common and emotion and a, you know, valid emotion that no one should feel guilty about having. I just was never mad at God. I was just so, so, so sad. But I just felt the Lord holding me all of the time through the entire journey. And I, there was, there's no way that I could have dealt with myself without Jesus. So what happened after Jamie and all those cycles? Because we know that you have two kiddos now. 
So what happened between them and how did that all play out? Sure. So we decided that we were going to look into adoption and we knew that we wanted to do it domestically and that we wanted a newborn because we were adopting, you know, to fill a loss and a hole in our family. So we wanted to start from, in our minds at the time, from scratch, right? So very, very naive about the entire process of adoption and the triad of birth families and child and adoptive parents. So we began our research and now I'm drawing a blank space because we stopped and decided to go back to infertility treatment. And I don't completely remember why we decided to stop pursuing adoption and go back, but that is ultimately what we did. At the time, we did not have the financial resources to fund a fresh cycle of in vitro because we were not covered by health insurance for that at that time. So I had worked in the school system. I was a teacher, classroom teacher, and I needed to get back into the school system only for health insurance. I did not want the responsibilities of being a classroom teacher. I wanted to do the absolute minimum because I had Jamie at home who was three years old and I had never spent time away from him and here I was going to go back to work only for health insurance to give him a sibling and I went right back. I actually switched doctors and I went right in at the beginning of the school year starting a fresh cycle and we did that and we ended up with four embryos that time, and that is because there are different rates of growing the embryos that the doctors will do, and our doctor, our new doctor, decided to take a more aggressive route and grow the embryos to a bigger stage called a blastocyst, which gives them a better chance of making it, but also is going to leave you with less embryos. We got pregnant for the first time and we were absolutely ecstatic and it was just, it was unbelievable, you know, that I was pregnant and I had a dream very early on. Actually, it wasn't a dream. I woke up in the middle of the night and had a vision of a pink neon sign that said, it's a girl. And this was like a couple weeks after I found out that I was pregnant. And so I knew that God was telling me that I had a girl. And we named her Lucy, um, Lucy Evelyn Rose. Everything was fine and great. And we were just plugging away. And then we had that 20-week that sonogram, which is just supposed to be for fun and giggles and memories and all of that fun, lighthearted stuff. Well, we went into the sonogram and the sonographer was very quiet and she said, I can't really see the gender of your baby because the baby's legs are crossed. And we said, okay. She left the room and she asked me to walk around a little bit and try to get the baby to move. So I did. And she came back and she said, I'm sorry, I still can't get the gender. So we left um, feeling very 
angry and confused. We just, it didn't make sense to us. And about 45 minutes after we had gotten home, I got a call from my midwife. And she said that the baby had a lot of anomalies, just the most random things. Everything was not right with this baby. At that point, I decided that I wanted to go back to my OB because I had planned to have my birth at a birthing center and be all natural about it. And I wanted to just go back to my OB at this point. He sent me to get a sonogram at a hospital. Anyway, to make an extremely long, complicated story short, this baby was not going to live. And so the reason they couldn't see the gender was because every part of her body was swollen. It's called hydra, like every part of her body. And so she only had a two-chambered heart. She had organs in the wrong spot. There was just nothing good about this situation. And a couple of days later, after church, she was kicking a whole bunch, like so much to the point where Timmy had like time to walk across the room and come feel her kick. And then the next day, I didn't feel her move at all. And I knew she was gone. I just knew she was gone. Just a mother knows. I went right into my OB and he did a sonogram and she was gone. And they still didn't know that my baby was a girl, but I did because God had told me so many months before that she was a girl. And I believe that he did that so that I could just have extra bonding time with her, like actually knowing who she was. I was induced and I went through an entire full labor and... I delivered her, and I held her, and the hospital photographer came in, and we took pictures, and my parents were there, and I had some visitors come before I had her, but after I had her, it was just my parents, so they could see her. I left the hospital the same day I had her with an empty baby blanket. That's just heartbreaking. I can't even imagine that. And I remember bits and pieces of that story because we were homeschooling in the same community when you guys were walking through that and you were working. So I spent, you know, more time with Jamie and and your mother-in-law, but I just can't even, my heart was so broken for you guys. I just can't even imagine. It was a very, very, very difficult time. I mean, obviously it was, and that's putting it lightly. You can't really put something like that into words. You know, the loss of a child is horrendous at any stage and and to have been trying to get pregnant for so long and then to lose the child is just you know more than you would think that someone could bear but we did bear it and after Lucy we got pregnant two more times with the same um, batch (laughs) in which she was created and we lost those babies very early on, um, which I was grateful for because I said, God, if I'm not going to keep these babies, please take them now. Don't take them months from now. Please just take them now Um, because I didn't want to go through that again. I had earlier term miscarriages. But if I can just back up for a second, six weeks postpartum after Lucy, I was cleaning my house and I hemorrhaged and they Timmy had to call 911 and I had to go get an emergency DNC because there was a little piece of her placenta that did not come out and yeah it turned into a bit of a 
medical emergency. And so that was another trauma added on to the loss of her and just really, really brought out um, some major anxiety and panic disorders that were lurking in my DNA <laughs> and are now full, were now fully present and are still fully present to this day. So it really, it really turned our lives completely and totally upside down. After we had tried all, all of the other embryos and we lost all of them, dispatch all through miscarriage or with Lucia still birth, we decided we were finished trying to get pregnant. It, we were just completely finished. So we fully pursued adoption. Basically, we only knew that we were going to do infant domestic adoption. We didn't know anything else. We didn't have an agency. We didn't know how to start our home study. Um, we just knew that that was what we were going to do. So we started to do a little bit of research, and we decided that the first thing that just had to happen is we needed to get a home study done. And we wanted to do it quickly, and we knew that a home study process takes at least three months to adopt a baby, you know, within the United States. So we weren't thinking that it was going to be a quick process, but we wanted to do everything we could do on our end. The health inspector had just left, and um, Jamie was out of the house. I believe he was with Timmy's mom, actually. And we were writing our biographies. You have to write your whole life story. And I got a phone call from my friend, Melissa Corkum. <laughs> so I know you her. Called me. <laughs> so you called me and you said, I have this friend who has a daughter that she adopted and her daughter's birth mother just had another baby. What do you say? <laughs> and so this is not a conventional way, right, that domestic adoption typically happens. Usually you are doing a home study for three months. You make a, a book of you and your family basically to try to sell yourself to a birth family. Well, you called us and said, there's a little girl in the hospital, and here's the woman's phone number. And it all gets really complicated because it's Emily's birth sister's adoptive mother who we, who you gave us the contact for because she was in contact with the birth mother. So I'm not going to get into a whole lot of details at this point because it's Emily's story and it's also her sister's story and I just, you know how that is. But we went to the hospital the next day. At that point, there's a lot of details in there, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit and just say that our home study ended up getting expedited. So instead of taking three months, it took three weeks. And Emily came home to us. We met her on January 10th, and she had an extended hospital stay. And she was released and went to the adoption agency's interim care family because we still had home study paperwork to finish. And so she was there for a week and we FaceTimed with that family and with Emily every day. And then on February 1st, she came home. So we met her on January 10th, did not have a complete home study. <laughs> and on February 1st, she was in our house, home with us. That that was it. That was now we had our our two children, and it was 
it was just a complete whirlwind of blessing and answered prayer and excitement and my dear friends at my house whipping a nursery up and planning a, a baby shower and all of these things happening at once while Emily was born already in the hospital getting well and there we were with a daughter at home. God's hand is just so all over that story and I know there are so many details and it was not an uncomplicated process to make all those steps <laughs> fall in a row. <laughs> And I and just the fact that they all did, and at the end you can say, and we got to take Emily home. It's just so beautiful, and she's a girl, which is not insignificant. Um, no. In light of Lucy's story, and I am super blessed to have played a little role in that. But I just can see God's hand in so many places across that, and so what a beautiful story that she'll have to carry and treasure, and um, and just what a blessing to be able to see God's hand because sometimes we look back or sometimes in the moment we don't always see where God's hand is playing out in our stories and I just always count it a huge blessing when we can identify his fingerprints um, in a story and so she is gifted with all of those things and you know just a really you know it's kind of like a made for Hollywood movie story really it is it really is it is quite fairy tale as far as the adoption world goes. And it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns, as you know, <laughs> believe me. But the end result is is just God, you know, tangible Jesus. There and there's another really just miraculous piece in that story. So I had Lucy in March, March thirteenth of two thousand twelve. And Emily was born on December 30th. And if you do that math, Emily was conceived in March of 2012. Lucy's due date was August 4th. And so I ended up having my baby girl just a couple months later than I thought I would, right? So I thought I would have a baby girl in August of 2012, but I had a baby girl in December of 2012, who was conceived the month I delivered Lucy. So it's completely divine, and I don't take that lightly. And it's good, actually, because I Emily's almost five now, and it's good to, to talk about it again and just really remember remember those details because when I feel, you know, far from God or I'm going through a big trial, which I happen to be right now, which has nothing to do with infertility, but I am in a in a very low spot right now in my life to remember how God literally just picked me up and carried me and my husband and even Jamie and just handed us a baby when we were so heartbroken and desperate to grow our family is more than someone can ask for. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So I know that you're coming to a close on dance class. So in closing, two things. One, what would you say as encouragement to women walking where you've walked? And two, what would you say, because you mentioned it a couple of times, how hard this was for Timmy. Um, And I think that's probably a piece that we don't talk about quite as often because we, one, I think women just 
are, we're a lot more verbal with our feelings. And so we all, it's obvious. We know that when a couple walks through infertility, it's really hard on the mom. So two questions. One, what is your encouragement? And then two, just what would you say as a word? What would you say about the husband? My first piece of encouragement to any women suffering through infertility is to find other people, other women that are going through the same thing. And over the years, I have been, um, have had women referred to me through people to talk about infertility. And I, I've talked to several people, you know, who are currently walking through it to encourage them. So that's the first thing is I would say, if you can't find it, in real life, then find it online. Um, there are, you know, treasure troves of, of groups that you can find online. Ultimately, it would be best to find an actual real life human being, <laughs> but you can, your needs, your emotional needs, I do believe can be, can be met by doing something, you know, through social media, find, finding a group because you have to have somebody that understands what it feels like. And you may have these wonderful women in your life, but they if they have never experienced infertility or loss, it's just not going to fill that emotional need that, that we have, those of us that are going through it. So that would be my number one um, recommendation is to find find someone or a group that is dealing with what you're dealing with. And you know, there there are there are things that dr- would drive me crazy that people would say. You know, there's a whole lot of things that people say that are not encouraging <laughs> at all. Like hang in there or, you know, you can, there's next time and all of just these and the thing is, is that people don't mean any harm. Nobody knows what to say. You don't know what to say or do. Sometimes I'll be talking to somebody and I don't know what to say. And I've been through it. Just take people and what they're saying to you with a grain of salt. They don't understand. They want to love and help you. And they just don't know how. Also, give yourself permission to skip those events that might be painful to you like we were talking about earlier, the baptisms, the first birthday parties, the baby showers, whatever. Um, And know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, The second question you asked me is kind of about the husbands. And I would just say that this is one of the things that people lose their marriages over. It's like one of those big top three things that that marriages can end over because Timmy and I have God between us. It brought us closer at the end of it. Now there were times where we were not close, but we persevered. And I just would encourage these mamas. And I I do call them mamas, even if they don't have a child yet, because they are mothers in their hearts to not forget about your husband, that it's hard for him to, that he's grieving as well, that he feels helpless, that if all he wants to do is fix it and he can't. But just remember, it's a journey between the two of you. Have a lot of communication. Tell him how you're feeling. Ask him how he's feeling. Don't go through times uh, where you're just silent because that's when the hurt 
can really have room and time to grow. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love, I don't know, whatever you said, it just made me tear up. I, <laughs> beautiful and, and I appreciate you and Timmy so much in your journey and your perseverance through some really, really tough times that, I mean, like that are all the top things that marriages die over. You've, <laughs> right. like, you've pretty much <laughs> done them all. So thank you so much again for taking some time for spending your free hour with me and for sharing your story. And I am positive there are people out there who are listening and just needed to hear what you had to say and super grateful. Well, thank you for so much for having me on. Um, it was definitely my pleasure and you know, my prayer would just be that, like you said, somebody that needs to hear this will hear it and will feel encouragement and just that you're not alone because you are not alone. I want to thank Erin for giving this, having this conversation with you and allowing us to share it with everyone. Um, I appreciated so much of what she had to say. One thing struck me in particular she talked about um, the experience that fathers have. And, you know, we tend to focus so much on the moms in terms of infertility and loss, but the dads experience the loss as well. And, you know, in my own personal life, while I haven't struggled with infertility or experienced that, you know, we, we lost our daughter when she was 13 years old in a very tragic accident. And, I think one of the things that surprised me the most was that Russ and I processed our grief and the loss very, very differently from one another. And it's, it can put a real strain on a marriage. I think when you're walking through these really hard things and you are experiencing it in your own way. So anyhow, I just appreciated her mentioning that. And I think we all need to be aware that this is a grief process for moms and dads and that it may look different for both of them. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you want to connect with Erin, you can find her on Instagram. She's at Erin from Maryland. And if you need just a little extra nurture for your soul, or you feel like you're alone in your journey, I promise you you're not, you can jump into our Facebook group and get some virtual hugs there. And you can find our group at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. And of course, all the things about how to connect with Erin and a link to the Facebook group are also in the show notes for the episode, which can be found at theadoptionconnection.com slash 83. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.